Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. In his book, uh, The Pale Blue Dot, the astronomer Carl Sagan wrote how an image of the Earth was uh, taken by the spacecraft Voyager from billions of miles away showing how our planet was just a tiny little point of light of, in this vast expanse of uh, space, and how it should change our view of ourselves. And I'm sure a lot of you may have even seen that picture, perhaps, on the internet of how they show the vast expanse of the planets and the sun and all that, and there's this tiny little pale blue speck of a dot, and then which is marked as Earth. And this is what he says as he saw that picture, this astronomer. He says, our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. And basically what he was implying through all that was this vast universe that we see and this little tiny blue speck that we call as Earth, this planet that we live on, shows that it's just all obscurity. There's no purpose in any of this. You know, that we, we are nothing. And, uh, and really, it's, it's this very morose, uh, dark, pessimistic kind of thinking. And yet, as Christians, as believers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as people who understand the Bible to be the Word of God, we understand this universe and all the vastness that it shows. It's not just... Obscurity. Even the earth that we live on is not just obscurity. In fact, Psalm 19 declares that the, the, all the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky uh, proclaims his handiwork. Elsewhere we read that God, uh, it, it was through him and it was from him and it was for him that all of this creation was made. You see, everything that we see around us, the the entire universe exists to glorify God. That is the ultimate purpose. It's not obscurity. It's not just things that just happen to be. God created it with a specific design and purpose, and that is to ultimately exalt himself and bring glory to himself. And that includes even you and me as we will look at our text this morning. We come to day six of creation. And let me just, let me just read verse 24. It reads, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. Remember, as we've been going through the creation week, we saw how on day one, God created the earth formless and void. He basically made this ball of water, so to speak, with raw materials. But the earth was really formless and void. And what he goes on to do in the first three days is he creates form. And then correspondingly, day four, five, and six, he begins to fill the void. Because initially, the earth was an inhabitable place. And so when he forms it and makes it habitable, he then fills it up. So on day one, God created the light, Correspondingly, on day four, God makes the light-bearing bodies. On day two, God separated the seas from the atmosphere and the space. And then correspondingly, then on day five, he fills it 
with living creatures of the sea and the air. On day three, God made the dry land, and then so on day six, correspondingly, God fills the land with living creatures, animals, as well as man. And if you remember last week, on day five, we saw that God began to make living creatures, animate life, animal life, and then he continues to create that kind of animate life on day six. What happens again on day six is God's powerful word goes out. And it says, let the earth bring forth living creatures. And really what happens is then on day six, God's attention now turns to the land and creating life on land. And here we have our first point, God creates the land animals in verses 24 and 25. So when it says there, and God said, let the earth bring forth. Now it doesn't mean that the earth had some kind of inherent power to bring forth animals. But it does mean that God used the elements of the earth to make animals. In fact, God says the same thing, in fact, in Genesis 2.19, that out of the ground he created Uh, the animals. And so that when they die and their bodies decompose, they go back to the earth. So God created the bodies of the animals from the earth, from the elements of the earth, so that when they die, they just go back to the earth. And notice here, the living creatures of the land, they're divided into three broad categories. The first broad category is livestock. And it refers to all domestic animals. Animals that can be tamed. From dogs and cats to cows and pigs and goats and horses and and camels and so on and so forth. I guess you could think of it as, as some of our pets and some of the farm animals. So that's the livestock, the first broad category. The second broad category is creeping things. These are land animals that you can think of that that creep and crawl. Everything that you can think of. Everything from worms to lizards to mice and squirrels and reptiles and so on. All the creepy crawlies. Now, the third broad category is the beasts of the earth. Now, this refers to the undomesticated animals, or what we would call as wild animals. So everything from, in fact, even things like possums and and monkeys and kangaroos and, and giraffes and deers to rhinos and bears and elephants and lions and, and even dinosaurs. Yes, even dinosaurs. I mean, did you know that the Bible talks about uh, dinosaurs as well? I mean, last week we looked at the Leviathan, some kind of sea creature, some kind of dragon-like fire-breathing thing. In fact, Job also talks about a creature that sounds very much like a dinosaur called the behemoth. Turn to Job 40, verses 15 through 18. Job 40, verses 15 through 18. This is God again speaking to Job, and he says this, Behold the behemoth which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins, and his power in the muscles of his belly. So this is a very strong animal. And notice verse 17, it says, And he makes his tail stiff like a cedar. So some animal that has a big tail like a cedar tree, a strong tail. 
The sinews of his thighs are knit together, and his bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. I mean, this is some mighty beast we're talking about. And it sounds very much like a dinosaur. I mean, it certainly doesn't sound like any creature that we know now. So all of these creatures, land creatures, all creatures great and small of the land, God spoke them into being. And notice also verse 24 says that these creatures of the land, that is the domestic animals, the creepy crawlies, and the wild animals, were each created according to its kind. This, repeat, this phrase is repeated twice in verse 24, and at the end of verse 24 it says, and it was so. It was exactly how God said it came to be. And then verse 25 says, And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. What's God doing here? He's repeating. And when God repeats, when we see repetition in Scripture, what does that mean? Emphasis. So God is really emphasizing that I have made these three broad categories, these land animals, according to their kind. And we've looked at this word last week and even a few weeks before that. It means to put barriers in the kinds of animals that can be reproduced so that a dog would not be able to reproduce an elephant over time. Or a mice would not be able to reproduce a camel sometime in the future. No, God set limitations in the kinds right from the start. There's no evolution going on here. You know, and just as a side note, you know, according to the timeline of evolutionists, birds evolve from land animals, right? But we know from the Genesis account that we have seen so far that even that timeline of evolution is wrong. Why? Because when did God make the birds? On day five. And we saw that last week. So God's already made birds... And now on the following day, on day six, is when God makes the land animals. And what you see here on day six is that all different kinds of land animals are present from the start. Domestic animals, creeping, crawling animals, and the wild animals. They're all there, right there, in day six. As God spoke, so it was. Nothing is evolving into another kind because God made each of those animals according to its kind. But we also know, and even as we've looked at this word, according to its, this phrase, according to its kind, we know that within the kind, God allows for great variation. Just think of dogs in our day. And the variations there are within the, the, uh, within the kind of dog. There's the chihuahua, a small little, uh, little dog that almost is like an accessory for some people. You know, then there's the sausage-looking dogs, the, the, the dachshund. Then you have dogs like poodles and sheepdogs with long, shaggy hair. And then to the very big dogs like the, the Great Dane and the Saint Bernard. So God allows for great variation within each kind. But he also set boundaries within the kinds. So that one kind does not become another kind. And so what you see here is there are many different kinds of animals, many different kinds of land animals, and all limited within that boundary of that word called kind. 
In fact, the passage that we read this morning for our Bible reading in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, in verse 39, uh, Apostle Paul, he makes the point of stating that there is a difference between, uh, the, the whole point here is he's making a point about the difference between the natural body and the resurrection body. And to make that point, he goes to the historical fact. This is what is God's created order. And he says, so God created different bodies for the animals. He created different bodies for the fish and for the bird and man. Bodies with various kinds. And so he says, so there's a vast array of variation and design in all the different kinds, but each of them have been given specific bodies right from the start. And so as you understand the differentiation, so also now you have this natural body, one day you will have a different resurrection body. Just like all, all, everything that you see around us, God has created with different bodies. And that's the point that he's trying to make. This very fact that this is how God has established his creation. So when you think about it, what Paul is saying is, if you don't believe that this is how God has made creation to be right from the start, then I don't have a basis for resurrection. That you will have a different body than to what you have now. That's what he's essentially saying. And so what all this points to, all these different animals with their different bodies, it points to the supreme wisdom of God. It points to the infinite knowledge and the creativity of God to create such different kinds. And what these kinds of animals ultimately scream to us is they're saying, hey, look at us. Look at how different we are. How awesome and great and glorious is our God. You see, and this infinitely wise and awesome God that displays his glory through all the animals that he has made is the same God that we have put our trust in. The same God who, in his wisdom, leads us every single day. It is the same creator God who has made everything in his wisdom. And the animals around us are further a reminder to us of God's wisdom and greatness of our great God. Now the end of verse 25 says, and God saw that it was good. He evaluates what he has just made and everything is exactly according to what he has purposed. There's no in-between links going on, going from one kind to another, because then that would be not so good. But God sees everything, everything is complete, everything is perfect, exactly how he wanted it to be, and so he looks at it and he says, this is inherently good in my eyes. This is good. So that's the first point, God creates the land animals, in verse 24 and 25. What I want to do with the rest of my time is to really focus on the second act of creation on day six. And that's God creating man from verses 26 to 31. Let's just read verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So after God has spoken into existence the land animals, God speaks again. But notice this time it says, let us. 
Let us make man in our, in our image and in our likeness. Notice God, this time when God speaks, the first person plural is being used here. Us, our. Now some have said, oh, this plural is used because God is including the angels. The angels are there and he's just sort of collectively saying, okay, let's just do this. Now the problem with that view is that it actually says, let us make man in our image. Man is not made in the image of angels. What really is hinted at here is the plurality within the Godhead. And as we continue on in the pages of Scripture, we observe in the Bible that even though God is one, there are three persons within the Godhead. What we would call as the Trinity or the the triune God. And there's a beautiful relationship between the three persons of the Godhead, between the God the Father between, and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And here, very uniquely, when it comes to this particular creation of God, there's a deliberation. There's a speaking going on within the three persons of the Godhead. And what it shows is that God is taking a special interest here. He's going to be intimately involved with whatever he's going to make next. That it's going to be unlike anything else that he has made so far. And so God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And just to note here, the the word man here is not a reference to Adam, but to mankind, male and female. Because as you move on, it talks about let them, let them, and that's talking about the male and the female. So what do these terms image and likeness mean? They're parallel and synonymous terms. And and really, image, it has the idea of being a representation of the original. In fact, the same word was used for idols and, and statues and even paintings. You know, all of those things, if you think of it, you know, idol, statue, painting, all of those things are representations of something else, of something that is the original. And so that's what an image is. And likeness, a similar sort of idea, it means to resemble, to be like, to reflect, or to model after. So for God... So for man to be made in God's image and likeness, it means that God was going to make man as a physical representation of God himself. Now this doesn't mean that God therefore is a physical being. He doesn't have a physical form. We know from other parts of scripture like John 4.24 that God is spirit. He's invisible. He, He doesn't have a physical form. And it also does not mean that Okay, if we're going to be a physical representation of God, then oh, does that mean that we are small gods, like demigods? No, it does not mean that. What it does mean is that in as much as a creature can physically reflect God, can physically reflect his character, God was going to do that with the creation of man. So obviously there's going to be creaturely limitations because we're talking about a creature having the ability to reflect the, the supreme creator. But now you say, but in what sense can man be like God? Or in what sense does man image or reflect God? Well, what it fundamentally means is that we are able to reflect what's called as the communicable attributes of God. And we'll look at that a lot more this afternoon for our FOF class. Um, but to say this, you know, there are certain attributes of God, 
called as his incommunicable attributes. So like the fact that God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is present everywhere. You know, those are things that man can never possess. Man can never possess those attributes. But God has made man in such a way that he can share in the communicable attributes of God, like love, like mercy, like grace, and compassion, and kindness, and patience, and wisdom, and being just, and righteous, and so on. See, the fact that man can love others, and can even love God, the fact that man can show mercy and and be patient, the fact that man has a sense of right and wrong, that man has a sense of justice, the fact that man is extremely creative, that man has wisdom and understanding far more than any other animal, and is able to reason and even communicate in language and have conversations with each other, all of these are ways in which man resembles God and reflects his character. In fact, even the ability to have personal relationships with others, and even more so particularly the ability to have a relationship with God, Uh, Unlike animals, it's an aspect of reflecting God, who within himself, we know that there is a personal relationship between the three persons of the Godhead. So even that ability to have relationships with people and with God is an aspect of reflecting him. So God was going to create man in his image and in his likeness. And therefore, give man the ability to image God or to to reflect God. And God was then going to give him a specific purpose to. Look at verse 26. It says, Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Now, now look at the purpose that he's giving to man. And let them, who is the them? Male and female. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. See, the function that is given to man is to exercise dominion. To rule, or to, to, uh, to rule over the realms that God had created. To rule over the, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the livestock and the creeping things of the land and over all the earth. As God's visible representative, man was to mirror the, the authority and the rule of the invisible God over all the earth. See, God is invisible. Man is visible. He's physical. And so as God's physical representative, man was going to image or reflect God's rule over the entire earth. Now verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God said, and so he created. And notice again the word created, it appears here again. We, we've seen this word again before in the previous weeks. This word created is only used of God because only God can create. Man cannot create in a biblical sense. And it speaks of something uh, of God's action, of God's creating something entirely new. And so we had this word on day one, when God created the heavens and the earth. Because there was nothing there, and out of nothing, God creates matter. 
Something entirely new was made. Then again, this word pops up on day five, when God first created living creatures. So something entirely new was being made. Now again, in relation to man, it says, so God created man in his own image. See, man was not something that just came about through natural processes or through evolution. Man was created by God. In fact, Genesis 2.7 uh, makes this very clear that it is God himself who made man out of the ground. And the word created here for man is making the point that man is something altogether new. That he cannot be compared to the animal life that was made before. And that's why the term created is repeated again with man. In fact, the term is repeated three times here. And again, God is emphasizing, listen, this is the pinnacle of my creation. Created, created, created. Man, I have created. This is something entirely new. And man is the very pinnacle of my creation. Now, another big difference that you will notice here, and what is absent with the creation of man compared to the animals, is the phrase, according to its kind. For all the other animals, that phrase was used. But when it comes to human beings, there is no according to its kind. And you say, why? Because unlike the other animals of the sea and the sky and the land, for man, there is only one kind, which is mankind. There aren't different kinds of human-like kinds around. There's just one. Man is not just one animal among many. Man did not evolve from apes and monkeys. No, God especially created man on day six, the same day he created the land animals. And he created man according to God's image and likeness. See, the fundamental differentiating factor of man from all the animals is that he is able to reflect God unlike any of the other animals. Because God put a stamp on Mark, uh, put a stamp on man of his likeness, of his image that is not given to any animal whatsoever. It is only specially given to man. And this was present right from the day God created man. This image of God and this ability to reflect God, it didn't sort of evolve like man came from monkeys and there was these in-between phases and at some point it happened, oh, now this creature will call him man and he's able to reflect God. No, God did that right from the start. All human beings, right from the start to this very day, are equally created in the image of God. And so what does that mean, even for us today? That there is no human being that is inferior or superior in the way God has created them. Every human being has a certain worth and a dignity because they are made in the image of their creator. So that means every human life we must value and we must show respect to. So regardless of whether a person is educated and from metropolitan city like Melbourne or a person who is poor and uneducated from a remote village in Africa, we are to treat them the same. Whether a person has this kind of skin color or that kind of skin color or that kind of skin color. If a person is physically handicapped or if a person has a low IQ 
or if a baby happens to be inside the womb of uh, the baby's um, mother, or happens, the person happens to be much older outside the womb, actually is a very old person and a very frail person and a very dependent person, we should not in any way demean any of human life. Because every human being is created in the image of God. And so that gives human life value and dignity. And what that also means is that human life is of greater value than animal life. That if you had an option between an animal and a human being, as far as God is concerned, that human life is worth far more. You know, for people who deny the reality of God and don't understand, you know, who believe in evolution and don't understand that man bears the image and likeness of God, but, you know, simply believe in evolution, that man is just a higher animal that evolved over billions of years. You know, there are many issues that they must face. You know, aside from demeaning the God-given dignity of man, really for these kind of people who deny God and, and creation and the creator, technically then for them, it, it should be okay to be rude to others, to steal from others, to do whatever they can to get to the top. Why? Because it's all evolution, isn't it? It's all about survival of the fittest. So it doesn't matter what you do. You just have to get to the top. There's no real basis for caring for someone. If someone is suffering or perhaps even dying, there's no reason to treat them to prolong a person's life. Because if it's all about survival of the fittest, then it's just nature taking its course. Death is a wonderful thing because it's just getting rid of the not-so-fit ones. See, when man denies the Creator and the fact that man is made in the image of God, morality and ethics go out the door completely. There's absolutely no basis for it. But as believers, we understand that it is precisely because God is the creator and all mankind is made in the image and likeness of God that we should care for one another. We should respect one another. We should help one another. Because all human life has equal value being made in the image of God. Just one other thing that I want to point out. While all human life is of equal va value, there is one distinction that God has made. Look at the last part of verse 27. It says, He created them male and female. Again, between male and female, there's no one who's superior or inferior in terms of value of human life. They're both of equal value, so men should not demean or put down women or vice versa. But what we do see here is that there's a distinction in genders right from the beginning of creation with regards to mankind. And what that means is that gender, it is not a subjective thing. It is God's established, created reality. Nor is gender a biological ac accident where a person says, oh, I I'm just somehow trapped in this body, I'm actually meant to be something else. No, it says, God created them male and female. As human beings created by God, being male or female is fundamental to our identity. And what that means is, therefore, man cannot suddenly decide then 
what kind of gender he or she can be. God decided the gender of that person, God decided what the gender of that person will be when he created that person in his mother's womb. God created men to be men and women to be women. And when a person tries to put that aside and determine for themselves their gender, they're really doing away with God's established design and boundaries, which is really for their own good. Because the minute we move from God's good design and His standards in any which way, it always leads to our ruin. Because God does only good for His creation. So as Christians, we should care about our gender because gender is determined by God and in the distinctions of gender, we are able to reflect God's likeness in very unique ways and we'll see that even more so as we get into chapter 2. So God creates man in his own image and likeness Male and female, he creates them. Next, God blesses them and commands the male and the female. Gives them a command. Verse 28. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God blesses the first man and the woman with the ability to reproduce and guess what? To bear other human beings who also bear the image of God. So that they would then fill the earth that was initially created void. So that all the earth would be filled with image bearers. And you say, and for what purpose? To subdue the earth and have dominion over the creation and over all the created realms. To rule over the rest of creation on behalf of God as his representative. To control and harness the energy and the resources of the living creatures and all of nature in such a way that it reflects God's good design and his order and his goodness and his rule. Or to put it simply, man was given the task of a steward to watch over God's good creation and to repart the, the, the best way in which it, went, it can continue to exist as the good creation of God for God's own glory. So when the first man and woman are blessed, they're commanded to multiply, fill the earth, govern the earth. What that is meant to do, this governing and this ruling, is that it was meant to continue, that they were to rule in such a way that it would be a blessing to them in the way they lived in the world, and that it would also be a blessing to everything that was under man, so that even whatever was under man could also flourish. It was never meant to destroy this world. But you know, ever since man rebelled against God, man's ability to carry out his God-given purpose has become very difficult. Still, despite the sin and the curse that came about, when you look around, there are still many ways in which man exercises his authority over creation even today. Here's what one commentator said. Fallen humanity has managed to take dominion over creation to an amazing degree, devising technology that allows us to cultivate only a fraction of the earth's potential farmland and still grow enough crops to feed the world. 
technology has permitted us to travel to the moon, develop amazing communication networks, travel across vast continents by air in a few hours, build dams to create large reservoirs, devise power systems that harness the energy in the universe to humanity's benefit and develop medical technology that prolongs life. Even in his fallen state, the human being is a wonderful creature still endued with the image of his maker, end quote. Another commentator states, God gave man stewardship of the land and all life on it. All tasks that man undertakes in God's world can be seen in relation to that original commission. Even the tasks related to helping other humans to flourish intellectually and spiritually enable people to deal with the land and living creatures. Arguably, every righteous task in the world, from that of the farmer or ranch, rancher to that of the engineer, the software developer, or the nuclear physicist, from that of the ditch digger to the physician or veterinarian, from the coach to the pastor, the zookeeper to the politician, the sergeant to the mailman, every task in the world can be seen in relationship to the subjection of the earth and the exercise of dominion over the animal kingdom. So there's many different ways in which man exercises dominion over his creation even now. And yet we also know that not all things are subject to man. There's still war and poverty and disease and so on. A tiny virus comes into the world and man finds it so difficult to even to move around. And many of the technological advances of man has created new problems while attempting to solve all problems. What does this mean for us? It certainly doesn't mean that therefore we can't cut down trees or eat animals or anything like that. They're all God's provision for us. But what it does mean is that we should not be careless and reckless about creation around us by simply saying, oh, God has given it to us to rule over all of creation so I can just do whatever I want. So God's plan and purpose for the man was for them to populate the earth and fill the earth so that the entire earth, under the rule of mankind, would uphold the lordship and the rule of the creator. So that then, when if someone were to look at the earth, the whole earth would be full of the image and glory of the creator God. Next, God provides food for man and the rest of his creatures, verses 29 and 30. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed, that is on the face of the earth and every tree with, its seed, with seed and its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. So God provides food. But the one thing that you will notice in these verses is that man, as well as all the animals, were vegetarians at this point. What's the food that God gives to man, as well as all the animals? Plants. Again, here we see an aspect of the goodness of God. Think of the trees and the plants. You know, they're untainted by sin, and there's no curses yet. So everything would have been so luscious, so, so green, every plant and, and tree abounding in fruits and vegetables and flowers and so on. And it was all given for food for man as well as the animals. Now God could have given man and animals something like the manna. Right? He, he sustained the Israelites in the wilderness with that. They didn't die and they were nourished and they kept going on. God could have just given some wafer-like thing like that. Just drop it from the heavens. 
But God in his goodness, he gives an abundance of all the plants and all the trees as food for man and animals. But you say, but, but how can man and all the animals be vegetarian? Because remember, this is the first week of creation. And sin has not entered into this world. And therefore, there is no death, even of animals. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, but, you know, God surely created meat-eating animals. So what about them? Well, I would say they, they ate plants. They didn't kill other animals at this point. In fact, just turn with me to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, it's talking about the time when Christ will return a second time and he will reign on the earth for a thousand years. And during this time, many of the elements of the curse are reversed. Like, and even the animals are like how they were before the fall. Listen to Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Do you see that happening now? A wolf would normally devour the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. That doesn't happen right now. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. That never happens right now. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And get this. And the lion shall eat what? Straw. Like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They, sh they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covered the sea. See, in the millennial kingdom, everyone, everyone will get a taste of what life would have been before the fall in Eden. And so that's what you see here right now in Genesis 1. There is no death of living creatures. Sin has not entered into the world. And so man and the animals were all given plants to eat and fruits and vegetables. See, one of the issues of those who believe in evolution and even go by the fossils is the fact that fossils are what? Dead animals. So you would have to somehow introduce the concept of death you know, sometime in that evolutionary process. But death doesn't come in until sin comes in in Genesis 3. And then on top of that, when you look at the fossils, there's even evidence of carnivorous animals, meat-eating animals in the fossils. But again, we know that at the start, when God creates animals, they all eat plants. They're all herbivores. And so all this doesn't come to play till after the fall in Genesis 3. And so the implication then is that the fossil records are after the fall, not before the fall. And what that does is it refutes the billions of years that evolution talks about and even concepts of macroevolution. So God provides plants and fruits and vegetables and they're good for the man and the animals. And verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So it's at the end of the sixth day, God finished everything and then he adds a superlative. He doesn't like every other day simply say, oh, this is good says this is very good. See, because everything that God desired, he created. All of creation was in perfect harmony and order. All of creation reflected God's wisdom and goodness and glory. And so God's creation at this point is inherently good in his sight. So very good 
that really nothing else needs to be done, nothing needs to be improved on it. And then it says there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day, another 24 hours have passed. Now just in closing, I just want to quickly remind you just of one thing about, especially about man, because it really answers some of the questions of how man came to be, how God created man. It didn't, you know, man didn't just evolve from apes and monkeys. God especially fashioned man. But it also answers the question of why man is so different from the rest of the animals. Because God made man in his image and likeness. And so what that means is, for man, right from the start, His very being and his purpose in life is tied to God. Because he bears the image of God. He finds his meaning by the fact that he bears the image of God. So you remove God, the very existence of man has no meaning. We become just like an animal then. And this privilege to reflect God and his rule to everyone. That's a privilege we should not forget as believers. See, because this special privilege to reflect God and his character, it was marred when sin came into the picture. And that's what we see even now in the world. The way people are. Man, instead of reflecting God, man wanted to show off his own glory. But here's the wonderful news. I mean, we belong to God. We are God's creatures. God put his stamp on us, saying, my image, my likeness, and you will reflect me. And yet, man rebelled against God. But God, in his kindness and his goodness, still came after mankind. So much so that he sent his only beloved son to this world to die on that cross for our rebellion, for our sin against him, so that we would be forgiven of our sins so that we would bear the righteousness of Christ and we would be acceptable before God. But you know what? It's not just that. You know what God is also doing? That image of God that is marred in every human being, for those of us who are believers, who trust in Jesus, that image is now being restored. Because we are being made into the image of Jesus Christ, who is the very perfect image of God. Now, one of the things we need to understand is of how God has redeemed us. That he created us in his image and we belong to him, then we were lost in sin. But so great was his love and his mercy and his grace toward us that he came and got us and purified us, forgave us of our sins and now gives us the privilege to again reflect God and reflect Jesus Christ. And one day that reflection that we will be able to do will be perfect in eternity. But until that time, I pray that as you understand that not only are you created in the image of God, but as a believer, now you're being transformed into the image of Christ, that, we, that would cause us to worship our God even more, to love our God even more, and really even the creation mandate to go forth and multiply and fill the earth with the glory of God, that's tweaked a little bit now in the New Testament. Why? Because all man has sinned, right? So it's not just about taking care of the creation. It's go tell them about Jesus. And as lives are being transformed from the inside out, guess what? Finally, it's Christians who understand, who are made in the image of God, will know how to take care of one another. 
will know what it means to show love and mercy and kindness and goodness and, and justice and all of that. And it will be Christians who will ultimately understand how to take care of this creation. Not for his own exploitation, but ultimately to display the glory of God. And let us never forget that. And so let us continue to love our God and thank him for what he has done and also take this message of Jesus Christ to the corners of the earth. Let's pray together. We recognize that we are a bunch of rebels. We want to do our own thing because we think it's right. We're lost. We were lost in our sin. And yet we thank you, Father, that even though we belong to you, that we are your creatures and we were headed for eternal damnation. You sent your Son on our behalf. And we thank you that you have restored that relationship back with you. And we have the privilege now of reflecting you in a much greater way as believers in Christ, as we are being transformed into the image of Christ. So help us, Father, each day, despite our sinfulness, Help us to remember that and to put on Christ-likeness and to display Christ and to reflect Christ to this lost world. And we pray that as a result, more people would come to know you and this earth will finally be filled with your glory. We thank you for your word. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.